welcome back from the south. We got at least some sunshine for you. <laughs> yeah. This is the whole like danger southern contingent right here all together. Hey, uh, if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head to children's worship with Miss Katie. She's standing back there. She's like, man, we're going to have so much fun. And she offers free candy. It's super awesome and exciting. And your sister and brother are going. So you, you can stay. It's up to you. No problem. So, Hey, um, it's nice out, which always means on Saturday night we have a little bit of a smaller crowd. So we're just going to have some fun together. Uh, I hope that's okay with you. And because it's a little bit smaller crowd, I feel more willing to embarrass people. And so I'm going to apologize ahead of time. But then I'm also going to say uh, one of the things that has been really exciting is like we are in a really vibrant, uh, fertile season here at FBC, having babies and pregnancies all over. I don't know if COVID increased the death rate, but it sure increased the birth rate, huh? You know, lock people up. Hey, uh, so Kyle and Stacy, if you don't know Kyle and Stacy Johnson, you can introduce yourself to them later. Uh, however, Kyle and Stacy just had a baby. What'd you, what'd you name it? Tucker. Just had a baby Tucker. How, like, you got to do the stats thing, right? Like, I've learned that. That's like a good healthy size, like cheese baby. All right, 8.08 a.m. Cool. Congratulations. First, first baby, first grandchild. So all new, all exciting. My wife is in the nursery tonight, and so, uh, yeah, give, you know, it's pretty cool, right? She's in the nursery, so I feel like I have to at least give a free plug. You're welcome to dump them off. I know it's the first baby, so you won't. But uh, you, you can do that. <laughs> Well, pass him very carefully. Probably don't let him out of your sight. I just, you know, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. You don't want to give him to my wife because we don't need to start that conversation. Anyways, let's pray. Have some fun in the Word of God together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening and uh, uh, just a cool group and a crowd uh, together for the sake of worshiping and glorifying your name. We just uh, we pray that you would make yourself known to us in new and renewed and exciting ways and that uh, as you do, that it would, it would really center us and focus us on the worship of who you are. Uh, help us with it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if you've got a Bible, we're going John chapter 15 tonight. Uh, if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, I think it's page 1079, somewhere in that neighborhood. Hold on a second. Get, just get one, one second here. We're going to deal with it tonight, if not. I just really hurt these cords a lot. All right. Better? Wow, louder. <laughs> Better. All right. We'll take it. Hey, uh, John chapter 15, here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to spend some time in the Gospel of John. I do want to just kind of catch you up, give you, give you a quick couple updates on some things uh, upcoming and, and really kind of frame them in a little more of a like philosophical sense than just uh, the logistics of what's going on because the logistics are in the bulletin. You can read a bulletin. Uh, but I want to I make sure that you understand the, the things that we see kind of 
ahead of us uh, as priorities as a church body over the next few months uh, are twofold. First of all, uh, what we've said for a little while now and just kind of growing is like we want to, over the course of this summer, really press and pressure you just a little bit, like in a good way, right, to re-engage relationally or to maybe for the first time engage a little bit more relationally, knowing that one of the things that this past year or so has revealed to us, and I think this is like a common thing, is that uh, we need others, right? We need one another's, and, and the Bible's really clear about that, and so uh, we want to help you and try to find ways to facilitate that, and so uh, we're going to resume potlucks, but we felt like we couldn't just kind of like boringly resume potlucks, uh, and so we're going to do the big Baptist barbecue the first Sunday in May and, and kind of kick off the idea of us uh, just doing some things to try to help us know and get to know and remind ourselves of who the others that we worship together with are, uh, and spend some time with them. And so make sure you make a priority out of that. Be there for that. It's going to be awesome. Uh, The second thing that I want to just kind of note along with, like a relational focus, is also going to be a focus on some structure and systems that help you continue to find a good level of involvement, whether it's in uh, serving, Bible study, uh, connectivity to the life of the church. Um, One of the things that we had like a year and a half ago was quite a bit of well-defined structure. This is this kind of who we are, what we do, when we do it, how we do it. We really had uh, all of those questions more or less answered in some pretty defined ways. Uh, one of the things that COVID did was, was it just kind of obliterated all of those. And so what was a really long, I mean, we had signs that we still, we still have one uh, that has 1030 Sunday morning. Like that was well-established gathering time. We've switched our gathering times 138 times in the last year, I'm telling you, right? Like, and so some of the things that were structure and systems that were in place are no longer the case. Uh, and really, over the past couple months, we've started to feel for the first time in a long time that we can begin to reestablish some of those things. And we can begin to kind of plan and we can begin to try to create some systems to help you uh, be more involved and more connected because uh, one of the things we certainly don't want to see out of this is a church that is more um, staff driven. And and what I mean by that is is that we just kind of figure everything out and then you just come as a consumer uh, to be a part of that, but rather that we are together integrated into what it means to be the church. And so uh, we're going to be working on that. uh, And it means that over the course of the next few months, uh, we'll be kind of giving you some pressing to get involved, whether it's in small groups, uh, whether it's in Sunday school classes, whether it's involved in serving, right? You just heard on the 22nd, you could come help us out with some landscaping stuff, uh, whether it's involved in some other capacity. Uh, beginning this summer, we're going to, on Wednesday nights, we'll do uh, a Wednesday night Bible study here at the church and have food. And so there's just kind of all these things coming up, but we're going to really build those out so that we can help you get more involved beyond just I come either on Saturday night or Sunday morning. And so structure, uh, systems in place, and relationships as what those look to facilitate all for the glory of God is really kind of a key priority. And so just kind of as we're talking, be thinking in that lens with us and that'll help you a lot. All right, amen? John chapter 15. Let's, let's get into the real fun tonight. Um, 
We are continuing in through our series in John, and one of the things we've realized over the past few weeks is that as John writes the gospel, he's recording three plus years of ministry, starting with John the Baptist and then all of his time walking alongside Jesus. However, as he writes it, he spends a big portion of his writing focused on the very last week of Jesus's life and in fact the last several weeks we've been looking at just the last evening of his life spent with his disciples before he's going to be arrested the next day uh, will be put on trial a, a mockery of a trial which we'll see soon and then sent to a cross to die uh, before this though John, a little bit different from the other authors in the gospel, synoptic gospel accounts, is going to write with a big focus on everything that happened that past evening. And so uh, in John chapter 13, he talks about in that Passover meal, following it, that Jesus got down and he washed the feet of the disciples and was teaching them in this. And then he talked about how Judas was going to betray him and sent Judas out. And then after that, he gives these words of comfort. And we looked at John 14, even on Easter Sunday, we looked at it and talked about, he said, I'm going, I'm going to leave, right? And yet in that, he begins this discourse about his going with words to keep them from being troubled or being afraid. In fact, uh, it seems, uh, to me, it seems reasonable as a motivation in your final conversations with the people that you love and have spent the last three years with to really focus that on a couple things. One is comfort and consolation, right? In John 14, 1, he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. A little bit later in uh, verse 16, as he's continuing on in that same discourse, he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you a helper that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you, right? These are, these are words of comfort. These are words that were designed to help the disciples not feel terrified in just a short while when Jesus was going to go to the cross. In fact, you skip down a few more verses. In verse 27 of John 14, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Same thing. Nor let it be fearful. Right? And uh, you go on, John 15, in this, he continues on. We looked at last week, him as the vine, and says, these things I've spoken to you so that your jo my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That the first and, and kind of priority in Jesus' teaching and the last uh, time that he has with his disciples was one of comfort and, dis and consolation as he prepares to leave, right? Um, I think about like my own kids and frequently as I leave the house to go to work or I'm going to be gone for a couple days, right, there's, there's always a couple things that you're looking to accomplish in those last conversations. One is, is that you want them to remember and know how love you very deeply, right? I, I'm going to uh, give them a big hug. I'm going to make sure that they know that I care about them uh, even more so than I would usually, right, because I think, well, if, you know, I get in I go to work and I die in a car crash on the way, which is hard to believe, right, because I walk here. Uh, however, if that were to happen, I want them to remember. One of the last things I said to them was, don't fear, I love you. I'm going to try to return to you, right? Uh, so that's part A, right? Now, my kids are young enough that part B is the instructions for when I'm gone, right? 
by the way, be good for your mom, right? Don't destroy the house. I love her more than I love you. If I come home, she's had a bad day. It's worse for me than if you had a bad day. So you better be obedient, right? That's, that's the second piece of that. So you have comfort, but it also normally comes with instruction, right? Like something that you ought to do, instruction for after I'm gone. And so uh, it's really no different. Jesus has spent the last couple chapters, and we're going to continue to see it tonight, looking at his disciples, preparing them with two motivations, to comfort them, to, to help them understand as he leaves that it is not a time for despair, and to instruct them at what it is time for and what they should be doing. So let's, let's look at it together and kind of think of it with those two lenses, comfort and instruction as Jesus gives them. Pick up with me John 15. We're going to start in verse 18. Here's what he says. If the world hates you. Now let's just pause. We're going to read this whole passage, but this is the first premise of the passage that we've got to spend some time on. If the world hates you. Let me, let me just say a couple things about this because at first glance that doesn't sound like comforting words, right? By the way, the world hates you. In fact, the first thing is uh, when Jesus says world here, uh, he's, he's using a term in a way that he means differently than he uses in other places in the gospel, right? Uh, so, so think about that in the context of John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses in all of Christianity. It says, for God so loved, what? The world. Yeah, good, man. Not a lot of you, but you're mighty in force. I'm going to tell them people tomorrow about that. Uh, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So uh, this world, as frequently, is uh, used in the Gospel of John. In fact, John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, right? That's a common word that Jesus and John, the Gospel writer, uses. However, sometimes when he's using it, he's referring to the totality of mankind, all those who would know God, and sometimes he's referring to it uh, in a much more negative context. Those not who know God, but those who oppose God, as in those who are of the Spirit and those who are of the world. Uh, frequently in the Bible, you say the same thing used with the word flesh, right? Sometimes flesh just means our body. Sometimes flesh can speak of our sin nature. And so it's really evident and clear as we read on when he says, if the world hates you, he doesn't mean all of mankind. However, what he does mean is that it's very recognizable that there's going to be a large contingent of people that are going to disapprove of those who follow Jesus. In fact, that's the second thing you, you take out of this and can know uh, just observationally, right? If, if you're a Christian in the context that we live in today, there's a growing and rising animosity towards what it, what it looks like to follow Jesus. We, we might even say that we're starting to feel, uh, in some measure, the world that hates you. Amen? I, I'll give you, I don't think you need an example because I think we just know this and see this quite frequently, but I'll give you one just because I've been waiting to use this. Um, 
and, and I'll show you why in a second. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the college basketball had what's called March Madness. That's is still one of my favorite things to watch all year in the sporting world. Uh, I get farther and farther away from sports as years go by. Uh, however, I always seem to find myself watching March Madness because you watch these like really little podunk schools of like 128 students that somehow put together a basketball team play the best teams in the country and frequently they beat them, right? So this year, uh, the team that was a number two seed in the NCAA tournament was, was really kind of flirting with the fact that they would be a number one seed, one of the top four teams in the nation, was Ohio State University. Now, I'm a huge fan of Ohio State University. And so them getting beaten by this little 15-seed school called Oral Roberts University uh, was glorious to me, right? It just... I was, I was right there with them from the gate, can't believe that they beat them, and so excited about that. And a couple days later, I stumble across this article. And just let me read some excerpts from it. Part of the joy of March Madness has always been watching smaller schools upset powerhouse programs as kids from regional, unknown colleges and universities get their moment in the sun. Because everyone loves an underdog, Oral Roberts has become a fan favorite as people take their improbable run to heart and celebrate the tiny evangelical university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And yet, as the spotlight grows on Oral Roberts and it reaps the goodwill, publicity, and revenue of a national title run, the university's deeply bigoted anti-LGBTQ plus policies can't and shouldn't be ignored. Founded by televangelist Oral Roberts in 1963. Now, just let me pause here really quick and say, I'm personally not a fan of Oral Roberts. Most of you probably don't know who he is. Uh, I'm not endorsing him in this article. I'm just trying to show you the growing mentality in the United States today. Founded by Oral Roberts in 1963, this Christian school upholds the values and beliefs of its fundamentalist namesake, making it not just a relic of the past, but wholly incompatible with the NCAA's own stated values of equality in conclusion. Twice in their student handbook, Oral Roberts specifically prohibits homosexuality. In their student conduct section, under the heading of personal behavior, the school expressly condemns homosexuality, mentioning it in the same breath as occult practices. Students are expected to maintain the highest standards of integrity, honesty, and morality. Certain behaviors are expressly prohibited in Scripture and therefore should be avoided by members of the university community. They include theft, lying, dishonesty, gossip, slander, backbiting, profanity, vulgarity, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, immodesty, homosexuality, uh, immodesty of dress, and occult practices. Right? So not... Not as sensational to say it was mentioned along with immodesty of dress. We must be talking about the occult. Anyways, not, not a big deal. Also as a part of the honor code, the university requires students to abide by a pledge saying they will not engage in homosexual activity and that they will not be united in marriage other than marriage between one, one man and one woman. Now, as a private university under the banner of fundamentalist Christian beliefs, the school is free to impose whatever standards of behavior they see fit, even if those standards are wildly out of line with modern society and the basic values of human decency. That, let me just read that sentence to you again, because I'm not sure if you knew that your standards were 
wildly out of line with modern society and the basic values of human decency. You probably came here just enjoying a sunshiny day, had no idea you were wildly out of line with modern society and human decency, but apparently you are, right? Uh, and that, that's not a, that, it took me five seconds to find an article like that. I could find a hundred more, right? So it shouldn't, shouldn't be a surprise to us that there is a growing feeling that, that builds kind of against the ideas and, and ultimately the values of Christianity in the world. In fact, if you know a little bit about history or you just read your Bible, you would see that that's not unique, that's consistent with what we've always seen throughout the history of the world, right? In fact, as soon as Jesus is crucified and resurrected, it begins in the Christian movement a time of antagonism and persecution that has lasted for 2,000 years to today. You just begin by flipping the page to the book of Acts and you watch by Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, the early apostles in the church, are being arrested because they're proclaiming Jesus in the temple system. A couple chapters later, Stephen, an early deacon in the church, is arrested, dragged out of the city, and stoned to death for professing faith in Jesus. The very next chapter, we're introduced to a man named Saul, whose chief role in his life, he feels like his mission is to imprison and murder those who belong to the way so that he could snuff out this idea of Christianity. Now Jesus, in his grace and mercy, actually stops him on the road to Damascus, converts him. Saul later becomes Paul, who then writes a good deal of the New Testament. In this conversion, what's so fascinating about it is him, as the persecutor, quickly becomes him the persecuted. Spends the rest of his life in and out of jail, beatings, lashings, whippings, because he won't recant his testifying of Jesus as Lord and Savior. You fast forward a couple chapters after that, Acts chapter 12, you find James, one of the early leaders in the church, is actually murdered because he belongs to the way. They try to arrest Peter and do the same thing, except an angel leads him out by night. Uh, that only stays Peter for a few years because eventually Rome will get into the scene and take over the persecution that started with Jews who hated Christ and moves on to Rome who hates Christ and begins to see a whole new wave of persecution that will end up seeing Peter, the first real apostle and leader of the church in Jerusalem, Paul, the author of so many books in the New Testament, and all of the rest of the disciples of Jesus martyred for their faith in him, except for John, the author of this very gospel, and that wasn't for lack of trying. They tried to boil him alive, and he didn't die, and so it freaked him out. They just exiled him to an island, right? And so the persecution, the resistance against the church is founded almost as soon as Jesus rises from the dead, and it lasts all throughout history. In fact, you finish the Bible and continue on in human history, and you're going to find that over the next two or three hundred years, there is a mighty amount of persecution and Christians who die because they won't give up their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that that just continues on until sometime after that, in about the fourth century, the Roman Catholic Church becomes the central power player in all of humanity or modern civilization at the time. Uh, they advance Christianity's persecution because those who actually 
proclaim the truth according to the scripture for the next thousand or so years are frequently killed by the Roman Catholic Church, professed as heretics, until the Reformation, in which it continues to be the case. And even to this day, now get this, all right? This, this is the final idea so that you really grasp that the world does hate you, that that's not a surprise, and it shouldn't be, that two-thirds of the more than 100 million Christians who have been killed for professing faith in Christ have been murdered within the last 120 years. Two-thirds within the last 120 years. So all the time and all around the world, The most consistent posture is that we would be a people who would understand that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and it's one that might be strongly resisted. The world very well may hate you. Now, I said these were words of comfort and instruction. That sounds super comforting so far. Right? So, so how is this words of comfort? Well, let's read. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but uh, now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the father, that's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, I want to start with where, where I see Jesus really guiding them, and by extension, guiding us to comfort in this time. And then, and then I want to move to a couple of things that I notice in the way he instructs us, or the what do you do once you're comforted in this time. So, so comfort first, if the world hates you, uh, here's the first thing he notes. You have commonality with Jesus. You're connected to Jesus. Look at verse 18. You know that it was that it has hated me before it hated you. He, he says again in verse 20, right? Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Here's the first and perhaps the foremost of all of the comfort that Jesus offers about the nature of finding resistance, finding people who uh, don't like the very proclamation of you as a follower of Jesus, is that you are with him in this. 
that you are common, are together with him because it was the same way for him. Praise the Lord, right? Um, works, works like this. Some of the like contextually most difficult things that I've ever done in my life have happened uh, in short-term mission contexts in developing world countries, right? So uh, if you've you've never done a short-term mission trip, the general theme of a short-term mission trip, uh, though they're quite varied, uh, I, I think, at least in my experience with a lot of them, is that you go to a place that doesn't have toilets that flush, and you work harder than you would ever work in an average day, and it's 171 degrees, right? That's just, that's, I've been down to Central America several times, been to Africa a few times, uh, been uh, across the world in the Philippines, and it's always, it's always 1,000 degrees, the humidity is 99.6%, even though it's not raining, and, and you're just working hard. And you know what's amazing about those, like, miserable situations is any time you're with someone who's gone on a trip like that with you, there is a bond and a commonality in that that afterwards allows you to speak with a great deal of joy about such misery that you were just in, right? In fact, uh, I've been around people who talk about trips like that that I didn't go on, and I can remember feeling like almost envious and left out that I didn't get to be there, even though what they're talking about sounds entirely miserable on an objective standpoint. Amen? Because, because here's why. In this, we know that, that commonality in relationship, and especially if it's a relationship we really treasure, and what relationship do you treasure more than your relationship with Christ, supersedes the context that you might see around you. And so, though the world might hate you, you know that in it, it is bonding you, it is giving you a common portion with Jesus. Now, not only that, look at how he says in verse 19 that it does something else. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but listen to this, but I chose you out of the world because of this The world hates you. Here's the second thing. The word of comfort is you have been chosen out of the world. That that you as his sheep have been pulled out of that. By his grace and his mercy, he's moved you out of the world and brought you into his fold. That you're no longer a citizen of this broken and this messed up and this perishing world, but that you are a citizen of heaven in Christ. And then then third, right, he goes on to say this, but all these things they will do to you, listen to this, for my name's sake. That's verse 21, because they do not know the one who sent me. Here's, Here's the third thing. The world hating you glorifies Jesus. And so, and so anytime you face pain, anytime you face trial, anytime you face persecution, anytime you face difficulty in the name of Christ, there's always the caveat that you just might be a jerk, right? And so they might not like you because of you, might not have anything to do with Jesus. So always be willing to check that in your pride box. But anytime you 
truly and faithfully are following Christ and the world is against it, it glorifies the name of Jesus. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us of this. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, that in that you could rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven, right? Because it glorifies his name. And, and then we skip down to verse 26, and he gives a fourth thing that comforts us in times of difficulty. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who proceeds out from the Father, he will testify about me. Here's, here's the ongoing comfort that we have that allows you, if you are in Christ allows you to trust in all contexts, in all circumstances, who he is, that he has sent a helper. And the Bible says those of us in Christ have the Holy Spirit in us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us in truth and is literally referred to as the helper. He comes to help. He comes to give you what you need even when things are difficult. Now, very simply, what's the instruction then? If all of this is comfort, what's he want us to do with it? Look at verse 27. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. That's an important word here. You would testify that that the role of the christian is to proclaim the good news of jesus christ that that the nature of christianity is the ongoing testimony of christians to the power the authority the grace the mercy and ultimately the glory of god in our salvation now let me let me tell you a story and then uh give you kind of a finishing charge with this as we speak about testifying um i've i've had to testify in court just once fortunately uh is years ago i was pastoring in michigan at the time and uh working with a family who who just had a miserable train wreck of a situation and uh and as it kind of imploded and things began to fall out all around uh, I, I had been brought into it, uh, by, really without any idea what I was doing, uh, beginning to try to help, help uh, a mom and her daughter and son and pick up the pieces and, and see all of this broken situation and uh, a, a strange husband and a divorce happening and, and criminal charges and all this kind of just chaos. And I just kind of walking through it, just hoping that I don't mess anything up too bad and, and asking for help from the helper, right? And so time goes by, and eventually I get pulled into court, and I have to testify. And, and so uh, they begin to ask questions and try to help you describe, like, from your point of view, what situation did you see, and all of that. And I'm answering these questions, and I'm, I'm super nervous, right, and uh, just trying to work through it. And then uh, it gets much worse, right? Because if you've ever testified, here's what happens. One, the attorney who asked you to testify uh, asked you all these questions. You describe the situation. However, there's another attorney who's just writing stuff down that whole time. And then they stand up. And it's like, oh, darn. 
right? Because then they're going to ask you every single question again in different ways to try to see if what you're telling them was actually honest, right? And so uh, I'll just begin to get questioned again and again and again about these things and trying to figure out all these things and trying to answer them as honestly as I could and as forthright as I could. And eventually we get through all of that and uh, it had gone relatively well, at least uh, as I had thought. Uh, And the attorney, the the defense attorney, the other attorney, um, pauses, looks down at some notes, looks up at me, and, and after this long testimony, says, Have you ever been pulled over in the state of Ohio? Thinking, well, probably, right? Like, uh, but man, where is this going, right? And by the way, we're in a court of law here. Now I'm terrified. Like, are they going to arrest me and ship me to Ohio right now as we speak? What's about to happen? Fortunately, here's, here's what happens. The other attorney goes, I object, Your Honor, right? Like, this is... Assault on his character. Listen, I don't have much character to assault. You go for it. I don't actually know if I've ever been pulled over in Ohio. It's been a long time since I've been in Ohio. I try to avoid that state, frankly. Uh, And so then out of that, uh, they kind of act back and forth, kind of talk about what it is. The the judge goes, what are you trying to prove? And here's, here's what the attorney says. We're just interested in showing that maybe... Pastor McElrath himself has a pretty sinful past. Okay. I mean, you could just ask that, right? In fact, that's what the judge did. He looked at me and said, Nick, are you a sinner? I said, undoubtedly. Overruled, and I got down and left, right? It was, it was great. I never felt as good to leave a room as that particular moment but here's here's what was happening right they they were asking to know what happened right that's what testifying is what happened you are my witnesses is the last words that Jesus tells his disciples before ascending into heaven you go testify now the encouragement the last thing I'll tell you because I, I think you know In fact, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that part of the the premise of the Christian life is that you would testify about Jesus. I want to add this. The last question they asked me was not about whether or not the situation was true. What was it about? It's about me. It's about my character. You want to know why? Because it's hard to believe a testimony if your character is garbage. Amen? That's why right before this, here's, here's what Jesus says, verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command to you, that you love one another. Always within the Christian life is Jesus going to intertwine our need to testify to his name, to proclaim who he is with our need to be a people who have a character that reinforces our testimony 
a people who bear fruit in him and a people who love one another. So we go forth because we don't have to worry about the world hating us. Of course it will. It hated him. We just walk in comfort knowing he chose us out of that. And as we do, it glorifies his name and we rely on the spirit to help so that we might be a people who testify in both word and deed. Pray with me. Lord, we are really thankful. Thankful that though the world might hate us, that we can know that it first hated you, that we can know that we would find comfort in you choosing us, that we would know that it glorifies your name and that we would know that you're here to help. And so I pray all of those truths that you would, you would encourage us, put courage in us to be a people who would go boldly to testify along with the power of the Spirit within us that we would also testify to your great name. Help us, Lord. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand? We'll sing one song together before we close.